0: Welcome to the podcast Think Biblically Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here with our guest, my good friend, Dr. Brent Waters, who is a, the STED Professor of Christian Ethics at Garrett Evangelical Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. He's also the the executive executive director. Is that the title? Chief Ancho, grant Brent
1: Director. Yeah. Of the
0: Stead Center for Ethics and Values at the same institution, um, Brent is just as a prolific author. He's pro- probably the most insightful Christian theologian I know about matters having to do with the intersection of faith, medicine, technology, and culture. So. Brent, I so appreciate you taking time to be with us on this, um, and we'll look forward to the conversation here. You've spent most of your academic, academic life as a theologian um, working on sort of the intersection of bioethics and technology. What has prompted you to in this, this sort of latest foray that's come out in your, in your book entitled Just Capitalism? where you've really tackled the intersection of faith and work and economics together. Why? What's prompted the shift?
1: Well, two things, one personal one professional. Um, personally, I, I married into a business family, and uh, my father-in-law died shortly after we were married, so I really never had the chance of knowing him that well. But he made an impression upon me about um, the role of business in life. and. Um, I tell my class in ethics, and I know they don't believe me until I look on their face, but I I tell them, I think my father-in-law did more good for more people in a week than I will do in a lifetime. Because he had... I'm interested to hear
0: the because. Because um, what he
1: did for his employees, what he did for his customers, what he did for the community. He was a tireless worker um, and contributed back to the community. Just. I remember one Christmas Eve night, he was late for dinner because at the last minute an order had come in for a customer who really needed something and he delivered it personally to her doorstep. Uh, I mean, it's it was just this dedication and, and that really destroyed for me the myth that business people were just hard-nosed driven people. No, they're human beings who love their communities, they love their families, they they love their employees. Uh, so that that merged over into the a professional where I spent most of my life in, in the academy, where business oddly enough is usually disparaged. Even people who hold endowed chairs, <laughs> uh, which I find somewhat you know, biting the ham that feeds you. Um, and just off-the-cuff remarks, I decided I wanted to write a book that was partly to say it's not as nearly as bad as you think. In fact, there's a lot of good out there. That's why I begin the book in praise of economics and business rather than beginning with the criticism. Does that mean there's things that need to be criticized? Sure. But let's at least admit at the very beginning, if it wasn't for business and commerce and economics, you and I would not be flourishing. You
0: and I certainly wouldn't have the luxury of teaching. I find it ironic that, uh, as you mentioned, you have colleagues in other endowed chairs who uh, think profit is evil. Yes, yes. And then the, the rejoinder to that, of course, is... Then you need to resign. <laughs> that's, right. <laughs> so, that's right. Because, yeah, because there's, you know, where do you think the money for your endowed chair came from? Right. Uh, right. So, yeah, and when you suggest they resign, that's usually not well received? That's kind of a conversation stopper. <laughs> yeah.
1: And <laughs> yeah, we don't go on from there very far. <laughs>
0: Uh, you, you indicate in your book, uh, and I love, I love your, your honesty and your sense of humor, uh, for, for, you know, most of us listeners, I think, don't know you like, like I do, but I've so appreciated your, I mean, your just dry biting sense of humor your, the way you approach life in sort of this tongue in cheek fashion, uh, is actually so refreshing, um, and you indicate in your book that you have probably alienated through, through where you stand, most of your friends on the left and most of your friends on the right. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, I think,
1: basically, I, I knew I was going to lose some friends on the left because I was endorsing a system that they saw as evil. So I obviously went over to the dark side of the force. And, and
0: Did anybody call you a sellout? No, one, one, one friend
1: who's still speaking to me, but um, he, he called me Darth Vader. Um, so there, there was that. What surprised me on the right, and I think it's because I didn't anticipate the election of 2016 was going to turn out the way it did, um, is. Join, join the club. Yeah. Um, I've been, probably the harshest criticisms have been from uh, strong supporters of President Trump um, because of I'm not sufficiently nationalistic enough. Uh, that I'm in favor of, of what they say, say is globalism. I don't think it is globalism. Globalization doesn't isn't synonymous with globalism. Um, how, how would you parse out the difference there? Oh, I think you, you parse out the difference as saying, look, I think global open trade is fine. I don't think that necessarily means that there's no place for a nation state. <laughs> of course, you're going to protect your borders. If you can't protect your borders, you're no longer a nation state. Um, and there may be, for some reasons, often I would disagree with those reasons, but I think there are sometimes good reasons why you might say we're going to restrict certain forms of trade. And again, I, I don't see anything necessarily wrong with that, but it may be that, and that you forsake certain kinds of prosperity in doing so. so that, but that's a political decision, and, and that can be made. So I think to be in favor of globalization doesn't mean you're globalism and you want all nation-states to go away. Okay. I, mean, I, I have no desire to live under the sovereignty of the United Nations.
0: Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> now, you, you say it's two and a half cheers for yeah. globalization. Why not three? Yeah.
1: Well, I think it's, in the first place, it's just my, my disposition. I tend not to really ever <laughs> say three cheers for anything except for perhaps God and my marriage. But and I'm not equating the two. But uh, um, but no, I think part of it is is that market capitalism gets a lot right, but it, that doesn't mean it's perfect. So I, I, I think that market-oriented capitalism doesn't do a very good job with helping everyone compete evenly. We uh, we tend, you know, there's going to be winners or losers in any kind of competitive system. And how do you help the losers be able to compete? I think so that's part of the reform that needs to come in. I don't think we do a very particularly good job of educating people to participate in the marketplace. And we really haven't thought, thought things through, even in the United States, for instance, I read an article recently. Um, Ninety-eight percent of our high school students are pre-college. But it's estimated over the next 30 years, only about 30 percent will need a bachelor's degree for the job that they're having. So we have very poor vocational training. And, for example, I think in terms of policy, I would have liked to have seen more money invested in community colleges rather than universities, because that's really where the job training is.
0: Yeah, and then trade and vocational schools, and, you know, I have a son that went to one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I admit it took some time for you know, for dad mm-hmm. to get over that he wasn't doing the four-year college route. Uh, but it turned out what, he, what he's done yep. suits him far better mm-hmm. uh, and college would have been, you know, would have been throwing money away. Right. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit more, you know, what's good about market systems?
1: Well, I think market systems are good from the standpoint that allows individuals to make their own choices and that they're responsible for those choices. Uh, no one forces me to buy products. I I choose to buy them and if I make a mistake then I can't blame anyone unless, unless I was lied to or something like that. It also gives an opportunity for people to produce and to sell and, and to help other people. I think it's, it's remarkable to me that we overlook, in terms of love of neighbors, something as simple as exchange. I mean. Exchange is a wonderful thing. I, I get what I need, you get what you need. It provides employment, it provides a lot of good things, and primarily every day we're interacting with strangers. And if you look at market economies, they tend to be much more peaceful. I mean, as much as we may decry the competition, I think that competition in some ways keeps people from killing each other as a, as an alternative. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I'd far rather compete with someone on the market than having to, to fight with yeah, them. they on the battlefield.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, so, market exchange is actually a way of loving your neighbor?
1: I think so, in a tangential way. How, how, how so? Well, um, okay, let's say, let's, let's use a kind of, not farcical example, but a typical example, because, I mean, most of the neighbors that I encounter now, I never meet. So, um, and I think this example may come out of the book, let's say one night I decide I need to buy a new computer so I can continue to write articles and books that are read very, very few people, so... <laughs> So I I order my computer, takes a few clicks and I'm done. What's probably what I'm not conscious of is the literally hundreds of economic transactions that I've initiated with, with neighbors around the world. Uh, for example, the, the computer servers may be in Vancouver, customer server, or customer review or the reviewing the orders in Dublin, Ireland. The basic components, software, hardware are made all around the world, maybe in six or seven different countries. The final computer is assembled in Beijing, air freighted by a corporation headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee, delivers it to my doorstep. Um, the night that I try to set up my computer, it doesn't work, I call the call center, it's in Bangalore. Now, literally, I've only talked to one person, but I've interacted with hundreds, and these are my neighbors. In a global economy, these are my neighbors, and I've provided, just you know not on my own, but along with other
0: consumers, their livelihood. So you've done, I mean, yeah, you've done, it's, it's pretty clear, I think, that you've done good for them
1: mm-hmm.
0: by by that, trans, that series of transactions you initiated. That's typically, though, not the way we think about our neighbors. Right. I mean, our, typically, I think we think about our neighbors as somebody who's, whose face we see, whose right. name we know, who we actually have conversations with, who we can contribute to their, you know, to their flourishing up, sort of up close and personal. Right. And, so, I mean, I, I could see some people yeah. saying, that's, that's a stretch to see, to see people in the global supply chain as my neighbors.
1: Well, I, I don't think it is a stretch. I mean, this is where I, I rely on Karl Barth, where he has this marvelous distinction between neighbors near and neighbors far. And your neighbor's far oftentimes are simply anonymous. Now, that doesn't mean you don't need nearby neighbors that you're more familiar with. And I think there's a part of the economy that's very good. And I'll give a, a second example actually did happen was uh, I go to this uh, barber shop that's run by a few middle-aged women and they don't take credit cards. Well, one day I, I go to pay and there's no cash in my wallet. So I offered to leave my mobile phone hostage as I go get cash and pay for my haircut. And, and the barber said, no, next time you drive by, just stop by and pay me.
0: They they didn't want to take your flip phone as... <laughs> no No,
1: they weren't interested <laughs> in any of that. But I thought, Okay, this is there's something really good about that. The face to face, they know I'm a professor. I'm absent-minded. This is plausible that I'm not trying to stiff them. Um, now I thought I'll try that with Amazon next time and see how far that that gets. So and that's not going to work, you know. So there's different levels, but I think you need both. And it's not either or; it's both and.
0: Yeah, and I think we we you know we shouldn't underestimate the fact that you know the, the, the folks who run that hair salon mm-hmm. they they know you mm-hmm. had a long history with you and they trust you right. Um, you know, I, and there, there are a lot of transactions that would never take place if we didn't trust each other. Right. Um, right. In fact, I, you know, I, I would have no no reason to trust my faraway neighbors. Right. In, in many of these transactions, but it, I mean, it's all, it's all. I mean, it's all premised on trust.
1: It is premised on trust, and and I guess what I would like to argue is that we we tend to assume that mistrust is normal and trust is is not. I think it's just the
0: opposite. I yeah. Yeah, and I, I've often said to my own students that uh, you know trust is the engine that fuels our economic system, not greed, or not even I think maybe not even self-interest. Right. Uh, but it's trust that's the lubricant um, for that. Um, now, um, the church has had a long history of skepticism about commerce uh, and about the accumulation of wealth, I and mean, we go back to Jesus' statement that it's you know easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's, I think, that strikes most. I think most people in our modern, you know, wealth wealth creating, prosperity bringing economy, as being a really harsh right. statement. Um, help us understand what Jesus meant by that uh, in the in that first century setting in which he said it. Well, I think I think
1: two things. First of all, be careful what you set your heart upon, and. Uh, I think what Jesus reminds us is that other than God everything is going to disappoint so that's why that's why in the ordering of our loves God is always at the high the highest point is that's the priority of our loves so that's I think it's a universal and that's a timeless truth and it's, it's a it's a, a good reminder to I think affluent Christians it's not your faith your your loyalty your hope isn't placed in in material goods it is God but this is also an object lesson and on the second level that context isn't everything, but context matters. So you really have to look at what is the context that Jesus is preaching to, because it's a valid question. Why am I arguing for the good of things like affluence and and capital and markets, when clearly for 18 centuries Christian teaching was at best skeptical of this and at most vehemently opposed? Well, the economy was different. for the first 18 centuries, it was a zero-sum economy because it was agrarian-based. Okay,
0: well, we'll explain to our listeners what you mean by that term, zero-sum. Zero-sum means I win, you lose, and I win at your expense. Okay, so there's a necessary connection yes. between winners and losers. If I, right. if I get a bigger slice of the pie, then you get a smaller okay. one. That's right, because
1: the pie is limited. And so th- what they're concerned about is if you hoard, if you consume more than you need, you literally are taking food out of the mouth of others. So this is why alms becomes important, because in some sense, you owe them. You've you've made them. You've important. taken it from
0: them. Yes. And, and so to balance the scales, you right. give
1: something back. But with the Industrial Revolution, not all changes. Economies now are no longer zero-sum based. They're product, pro, productive, uh, they're based on productivity. So you and I, um, now you may make a lot more money I, than I do, and you probably do work at Biola rather than Garrett. I like But anyway, um, it doesn't mean that you're better off because you took something from me. It just means that for a variety of circumstances, maybe you worked harder, maybe you were lucky, but for a variety of circumstances, you're better off but not because you've impoverished me. And that's what modern economies are based on. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a host of ethical issues on how money is made in a modern economy, but I don't think you can say, okay, these economies are now predicated
0: upon the rich making the poor poor. But that's, isn't, isn't that what lots of politicians mean when they say the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor? I mean, well, don't, don't yeah. they mean that the rich getting richer is actually causing the poor to become poor? Well, if they mean that, then it's either through
1: ignorance or a willful disregard for the truth, um, because that's simply not the case. Now, you can make the case that the gap between rich and poor is widening, and, and there's good evidence that it is. But as an ethicist, the question I would pose is, as long as the floor is rising, does the gap matter? And I think if you're going to argue that if the gap matters, it's for other reasons than simply the wealthy are getting more more wealthy. Um, I'm also not sanguine about the g- narrowing of the gap anytime soon because of the rate of innovation. The innovations, Periods of innovation always make wider gaps.
0: Okay, and that, that goes back to a, a, a part of the book that you... Talked about you quote the late uh, economist Joseph Schumpeter mm-hmm. and his, his well known phrase of creative destruction. Um, you know we sort of use that example that when cars came along, all everybody in the horse and buggy industry lost their jobs and you know lost their careers and their businesses. Um, and so I think it sounds like what you're arguing is that um, the cr- the creative destruction that comes with innovation is happening so much faster today. Uh, and it's creating more, it's creating more temporary losers right. that that have to retrain and retool uh, and get themselves into another, uh, you know, a productive sector of the economy. Right. So how? Uh, but the the criticism is that, you know, how can this displacement of workers, the loss of jobs, you know, some people will, I mean, they're, I mean, they're never gonna, they're ne- they will never recover from this. How can that creative destruction on balance be a good thing? Well, I think on
1: balance, on a macro level, it is because it generates actually more jobs. It it creates and, and it creates in the in the short time more opportunity, which which then creates it. And I think there there, it's almost inevitable because. Uh, well, let me first of all back up, and you know, the creative destruction is is you know you have the, the winners and losers. But uh, for example. Um, what we don't recognize is that even in those opportunities where some jobs are destroyed and others created is that, for example, since the financial crisis, the relative number of people working in the automotive industry really hasn't changed. Detroit was hit hard, but not the automotive industry. It just migrated elsewhere. For example, I, I own a car that's manufactured and assembled in Japan. Now, when I take it in for servicing, as far as I know, there's no Japanese citizens working there. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. And what am I told when they offloaded in Long Beach, the same thing as American citizens that are doing the offloading and delivering. So that actually, with a certain decline of some American-made, quote, American-made cars, the void is filled with others, which then creates other jobs because they need dealerships and distribution centers. The other thing, too, is it shouldn't surprise us that jobs change a great deal rather rapidly, and sometimes we just don't take account of it. Uh, I mean, it's a silly example. Uh, My wife and I started watching on YouTube reruns of what's my line you know from the, <laughs> yeah. from the 50s and 60s yeah. what amazes us is how many of the jobs are, don't exist anymore they yeah. just, they're just gone and they've been gone for a long time um, and now do we want to really go back to an era where there's no calculators, there's no smartphones, I mean all the things that you and I take for granted, probably not but that means there's certain kinds of jobs will no longer exist because there's no need
0: for them and I can see in the, in the long run scheme of things, I don't see us lamenting no. that those things are gone. Right. Um, so let, let's go, you said just a minute ago that uh, affluence is a good thing, mm-hmm. and, and the, the wealth that's created by Marcus is on balance a good thing. Um, you know, yet, we have a lot of people in our Christian circles who extol poverty as a virtue uh, why 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 is poverty seen as as such a virtuous thing um, and why and, and why don't you think the scripture teaches that?
1: Okay, that's a fair question and I think some forms of poverty are a virtue if they're voluntary I, mean, I think Mother Teresa was a very virtuous woman but she chose that poverty uh, I think involuntary poverty just grinds people down and it destroys them because if you're for example, if you're a single parent, you're trying to put together three part-time jobs to support support your children, you don't have time for anything else, and, and you're weary, and that's you're right. broken, and you don't have time to really think about these things. One of the things I discovered in writing this book is Scripture is quite correct. Um, we do not live by bread alone. But you don't know that until you have more bread than you need to eat. Yeah. And I think that that's what affluence allows us to do, is we begin to realize... There is more to human flourishing than simply working, and, and, and being engaged as in, in, in in the marketplace. But what that affluence allows us to do is the leisure, and the time, to really pursue those those uh, avenues of life, families, churches, voluntary associations, where we
0: flourish. So maybe Aristotle might have been onto something. When he's you know, although you know I'm not wild about how he relegated work to such a low category but what it enables yes he saw as crucial yes. to, to our achieving our end right and the flaw
1: to aristotle's he could not conceive of of an economy where everyone worked it was predicated upon the elite being dependent upon the, the
0: labor of slaves and that, i think that's the great flaw in you know comes out of yeah. what economic life was like during right. during that period. So if aff- if affluence is a good thing, how do you avoid something like the prosperity gospel? Oh, because your affluence isn't a reward;
1: it's what you're entrusted with. Um, so that yeah. um, if you don't do a good stewardship uh, with with the affluence that you have accumulated, I think you'll be held accountable. I think I think God actually will ask you, "Why did you just hoard?" <laughs> Why, why didn't you use your excess okay. for other kind kinds of things? Uh, so it, no, I don't think it's a, it's a the prosperity gospel. I think where it gets it wrong is simply to say as I'm being rewarded by God uh, for the good things that I do. Okay, yeah,
0: as a as a yeah as a reward for righteousness. Yeah, because um, cause I know a lot of good Christians yeah. who suffer. Yeah, I know. Well, I know a lot of good Christians who are poor. Yeah, um, that's right. Now I think in some cases they've chosen that. Not quite on the same. Uh, you know, same level as Mother Teresa, right? But uh, you know, I, a lot, lot. I think the part of the reason there's inequality is because people make choices mm-hmm. about how they're going to earn their living. I mean, artists. You know, I got several of those in my family, uh, seminary professors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, others who who make choices. I think others make just make bad choices. Right. That sets them back. Um, but what, what do you do with the inequality that's the result of an unlevel playing field, and, and, and you know a start, starting point that's different? You know, my you know my kids went to great public schools, and you know we live in you know in, in an area where the schools are terrific, and my kids got a, a significant head start uh, over kids in say the inner city of Los Angeles. Um, so I mean inequality that's the result. No, not of any choices that are made, but simply, you know, the, the luck of a zip code you were born into. Right. Well, despite what the
1: Democratic candidate who came in second place in the primaries in 2016 says, you go Sweden. Sweden's a very interesting example, because Sweden's ec- Sweden has a first-rate educational system. Through primary and secondary, it's, in, it's funded entirely through vouchers, and it's fierce competition between private, public, for-profit, non-profit schools, and what determines their success is their enrollment, because if they don't make certain enrollments, they close. And this includes, you know, uh, state schools as well. So they're constantly shifting towards the demands of what the marketplace is, and some parents have made choices, I want vocational training for my children, or I want uh, pre-college, or whatever, but they keep adjusting to that, and I think what you need to do is empower the actual consumers of education so, to be blunt, I would as a taxpayer, I would rather fund students and not
0: schools and and, and sort of ma- maximize parents' ability to choose yeah. so that right. it forces as much competition as, as possible right. Um, right Okay yeah uh, that that one has some hills to climb with the, with it the te- with the teachers' unions and yes it does. Um, yeah. and, and the education establishment. Mm-hmm. But I think that to see an example of where it works in other parts of the world, mm-hmm. um, I mean, because it seems to me that leveling the playing field at the very beginning is the, the one place where we can fix the issue of economic inequality. Yeah. Um, now, I, I also, I'm, I mean, I think it's worth losing sleep about where inequality is the result of injustice. Right. That's done. It seems to me, if, as I read the prophets, that that's what they railed about most frequently when it came to economics. Right. That it was, that the, the spirit between the rich and the poor, when it was the result of injustice, which was the norm in the economies of the ancient world, that's what they got most exercised about.
1: Yes, but 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 I think what's also interesting in, in when you look at the prophetic literature, who did they rail against? They usually railed against the king. Uh, I mean, so that I think that they say, okay, it it is an injustice for the state to take more than it needs um, to exist where it takes money to, you know, aggrandizement and and, and things like that. I mean, I think it's very interesting in, in, in Samuel's warning to the people. He says, you realize, you know, God will give you a king, but then he'll take your sons, he'll take your money, he'll take your crops, and now if you still want it, God will give you a king, but this is the price. And I think that that's part of the prophetic warning, is that the state isn't necessarily a good substitute for the market when it comes to your well-being.
0: All right. Now, you've all, you, we just covered part one of your book. Right. That you know, market exchange is a good thing, but there's a but coming. So what's the but that, that finishes out that sentence? Yeah, the,
1: the but is that, uh, okay, market exchange is necessary, but it's not sufficient. If you and I want to live the abundant life, it, it has to go beyond simply exchange and it's what I call communication. Communication comes from the word koinonia and it can be communicated or it can be a, a translated as a community, communion, communicate. So to exchange the goods of, of creation means what is yours becomes mine, what is mine becomes yours. But to communicate the goods of creation is what is yours and what is mine becomes ours and that's just fundamentally different. Now, I think I think communication builds upon exchange. It, it needs to, to tend to the material well-being of people who will be engaging in community. But I think, OK, when you ask, where do we flourish? Well, I think we flourish in families, in churches, in, in associations that aren't necessarily driven by exchange. I think it's very telling that, for example, when you go and take a Eucharist to church, you don't buy the host. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you communicate the host. Um, yeah. And and I think it's vitally important to, to to remind ourselves that I mean I think families would be dreadful places if they were run like businesses. Really,
0: oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, just a, it's a bad fit. I, I don't like the idea of my my kids when they were teenagers thinking that they could fire their parents. Uh, right. You know right. That, that that's not a pretty sight. No, it's not. Um, so there's so there's there, I mean there's there's a lot more to human flourishing obviously than just our material well-being. Mm-hmm. But without that material well-being, that's, that's presupposed for, yeah. for, for, for full human flourishing?
1: I think so, because, I mean, if, I, if I'm spending all my time, either through necessity or, or greed, um, you, know, you know, going after wealth, when do I really have the time to engage in something I would call Sabbath, which is being in the receptive mode of receiving the good of creation in its, in its totality? I don't, and I think in, in the absence of that, we, we do not flourish. We survive. We may survive very comfortably, but we don't flourish. Um, and there again, that's why I think with these associations like church and families, you, you, need, you need to really protect them from either uh, undue influence by the markets or undue influence by the state. They really are an important buffer between the two. Um, and I'm not sure we're doing as, as good a job as we can uh, to protect
0: it on either flank. Okay, so there's, yeah, there's a significant place for what, what Roman Catholics call those mediating structures. Yes. Yeah, right. Uh, to, or civil to, society. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that needs to be healthy and nurtured. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a, v- a very stimulating in- introduction to our conversation uh, on the integration of, of faith and economics. Uh, we've really, we've gotten, I think, significantly to the part where, Markets are, and market exchange is a, is a necessary condition, but not sufficient. In part two of this, I'd like to explore the not sufficient okay. part of this, right. uh, and we'll take this a little bit further. Uh, so, Brent, thanks for being with us on this, and thanks for joining us on part two upcoming. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Brent Waters, to find more episodes, uh, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. Listen in next time as we as we invite Dr. Waters back to continue this important discussion. If you, if you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app. Share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.